It is so good to have you here. For those of you who are brand new, you came today because of family members being baptized or maybe one of your kids or grandkids was singing today. My name's Christian. I'm one of our pastors. We're really grateful you're here in our Bible study time today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If they gave you some a bulletin when you walked in that has some notes that you can take as you follow along, if you want to kind of learn your way through this message with notes. If you don't have a Bible, not a big deal today. Everything I read from Scripture will be on screen, so it'll be super easy to follow along. Every Sunday we gather and we have a Bible study. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God for the people of God so that we can live out the purposes of God in our life. So every Sunday we're going to open the Bible. We're going to read it a little bit. Let me say this before we start. I am... Um, I'm so grateful to be a part of a community where God is moving like he is. And I, and I don't mean journey. I mean like Lee Summit and what God is doing here. Um, last, last weekend, uh, I was texting with a, a group of kind of pastoral friends um, that I have in the city that we interact with all the time. Pastor Chris uh, Williams at Fellowship of Greenwood, his wife, Kate. Um, Chris and I were college interns together at a church 20 years ago. His wife, Kate, worked with Danielle and I. We go way, way back, texting him back and forth about our Easter services, um, texting Pastor Matt and Sherry at Eagle Creek. We're actually borrowing a couple of their baptistries today to help us get through 96 people. And then it looks like we borrowed one from a farmer um, somewhere as well, but um, we're glad to have all those. Um, just texting them, Pastor Scott um, uh, Obrimsky and his wife Jen at Summit Park, who are great friends of ours, Pastor Phil uh, at Abundant Life, Pastor Dylan and Rebecca Neely um, at King's Church. Just being able all week long leading up to Easter to be texting back and forth with these pastors in these churches that we're going to be doing the exact same thing as ours, that's rare. I need you to know that's rare. There's not a lot of places in a lot of cities where pastors in the exact same area drawn from the exact same people um, love each other, pray for each other, talk with each other. Um, and I'm so grateful that the, the most impactful Christian school in our community is in our backyard. Um, it's a school that both my kids graduated from. Some of my closest friends work there and are there. And uh, when we were at their building dedication and I heard that choir sing, um, that song and those kids were anointed. Don't you agree? Like they, like they were so good singing that song. I thought, man, I want them to come just worship that over our congregation as we believe for what God is doing in our city. Uh, for those of you who work and make decisions at Summit Christian Academy, um, let me implore you to keep building uh, because there are more families in our community that need that school and desire to go to that school than you can even hold right now. So thank you for your leadership in that area um, and just keep going. We are cheering you on as one of our community partners, educating um, kids whose families have decided on Christian schooling. We're really, really grateful for you. Um, April is like the never-ending month at Journey. So much good ministry going on in April. Um, Sunday night, April 30, is a special time for us. We, uh, about twice a year, gather all of our volunteers, nearly 1,000 volunteers who make this place run weekly together into an event that we call Inspire. Um, so Sunday night, April 30, 5 p.m., we're having what we call our Volunteer Inspire Block Party. It'll be a service, some prayer time, some communion together. Um, and then we've got a huge cookout. We've got a big outdoor activity stuff set up. Um, we actually have some ministry teams that are competing against each other and pickleball and ping pong and cornhole. The ministry teams right now are dividing so that they can conquer um, the other ministry teams. Lord willing, we'll all be friends after that, but it's going to be a really fun night. So volunteers, I hope you'll mark that night and plan to be here. Um, also that day, we will be having what we call step five in our year of trying to do discipleship better and making disciples who can make disciples. We've added a new step to our growth track that meets every fifth Sunday. It'll be at 1030 next week, and then we'll have a lunch and a 1230 session at well, just a one hour kind of Christian
Christianity 101, what does it mean to be a Christian, be a disciple, and how can you make disciples? Our prayer is that in 2023, every person in our church will go through that. So if you haven't yet, you can sign up for that, go through that on Sunday, April 30. It'll be well worth your while as a follower of Jesus, I promise you that. Because we are a church that just teaches through the Bible, kind of verse by verse where it leads us, but we break for like big holidays like Easter, uh, we today jump into Matthew chapter 21, a week after Easter, and Matthew 21 is a week before Easter. Um, So we're going to have to, the week after Easter, go back to Palm Sunday because that's where we left off on Easter Sunday, Palm Sunday, this entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We'll spend six weeks in a new series that we're calling King Jesus. We'll see what Jesus' ministry, rule, and reign look like over the people of Israel and over the kingdom of God. Um, After that, we will, at the last Sunday of May, kick into Matthew 24 and 25. In scripture, that's called the Olivet Discourse. That's Jesus for two whole chapters talking about the end times and everything that Christians need to know about the end times. That'll be all summer at Journey. And then believe it or not, when we enter the fall, we'll be back at Easter week again because that's where the text is gonna take us. But we begin today with, I think, what could rightly be called the coronation of Jesus in Jerusalem. Now, three weeks from yesterday, um, there will be a coronation in England. King Charles III will be coronated. Uh, they, they said that uh, nearly 300, between 300 and 500 million people around the world will watch it live. And when he walks out of Westminster Abbey, because the coronation is kind of the religious service of the new king or queen um, of England, uh, he will have on his head the fourth largest polished diamond in the world, a 317 carat diamond on the crown that he's going to be wearing. Set right above it is one of the oldest rubies in the world. Um, His wife, Camilla, will also have a crown on. And that will begin kind of their very public rule and reign as the king um, of England. Jesus in Matthew 21 had this ceremony, it looked far different than what we will see uh, on May 6th. Um, He received a crown at the end of it, and he would receive a throne at the end of it. But it would look far different than probably anything that we've ever seen. And as we pick up in Matthew chapter 21 today, the week before Easter, we were in Jericho, and we said we were taking a 15-mile walk from Jericho to Jerusalem, 3,500 feet of elevation to go into the city to the crucifixion. Here's how it reads in Matthew chapter 21. We're gonna learn three things about the ministry of King Jesus while we read through today's text. We'll learn what we're gonna learn and then we'll read about it and learn some more. Here's the first thing we're gonna learn. We're gonna learn the ministry of King Jesus is the ministry of sovereignty and surrender. As we look at the coronation of Jesus riding in Jerusalem on what we know, now know as Palm Sunday, We're going to see that the ministry of King Jesus is the ministry of sovereignty. It's also the ministry of surrender. Look at verses 1 through 5 of Matthew 21. It says, as they approached Jerusalem, 15-mile journey, they'd just come from Jericho, 3,500 miles uphill, and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find, if you're reading with me, circle the word find, a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you say that the Lord needs them and he will send, circle the word send, them right away. This took place to fulfill, circle those two words, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, say to daughter Zion, that's Israel, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. As we look at the ministry of King Jesus, we're going to look at these words, find, sin, fulfill, and we're going to see that Matthew, who wrote this book, wants his readers to understand 
two crucial aspects of King Jesus' ministry, the aspect of omniscience and the aspect of sovereignty. Matthew, as he writes his book, writes it in a way that helps us understand that Jesus knows everything about thoughts, times, towns, villages, people, interaction. He's also going to teach us through fulfilled prophecy about sovereignty. So as we look at what it means to be a Jesus follower, what it means to have Jesus as king, we need to know a little bit about what omniscience and sovereignty are. Omniscience is the attribute of being all-knowing at all times. If you took a Theology 101 class about theology proper, the knowledge of God, what do we know about God? You would see that what the Bible teaches about God are these three kind of omni-statements, that God is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, that God is omnipresent, that God is everywhere all at once, and that God is omniscient, that he knows everything at all times. This was the testimony of the people of Israel, they believed their God was aware of everything happening all the time. You can find these omnipresent, um, omnipotent, omniscient characters of God in 139, in Psalm 139, but in Psalm 139, speaking specifically about omniscience, David, the king of Israel, would say, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways before a word is on my tongue. You, Lord, know it completely. God knows everything you will go through, and God knows everything going through you. That's what omniscient means, that we can trust that God is aware of everything at all times. Now, some of you hear that attribute of God, and you look at your life and try to apply it to your life and think, I'm not sure that's true of me. Or if God knows everything about me all the time, I'm not sure that God has much control about things in my life. And that's where sovereignty comes in. Sovereignty is the divine control of events and outcomes according to the divine purpose of God. And sometimes, because we look at what is happening in our life and we don't believe God is looking at what hap is happening in our life, or sometimes because we look at what is happening in our lives and we think if God is good and in control that it shouldn't happen in our life, sometimes we are tempted to believe that God either does not know or he does not have power to change what is going on in our life. But the ministry of Jesus in the area of omniscience and sovereignty is really, really important. As a matter of fact, Matthew quoted a verse from people who believed that God either did not see what they were going through or was not in control of what they were going through. Matthew quoted the verse that was given to them to encourage them to keep faithfully going through what they were going through. So Matthew quotes an Old Testament prophet by the name of Zechariah. Zechariah, 500 years before Jesus was born, would, would quote this verse about the king of Israel riding into Israel on a donkey. Now here's Zechariah's story. Zechariah was born in Babylon, not in Israel. Because Israel had been conquered by the Babylonians, they ended up being conquered by the Persians, and the new king of Persia was a guy named Cyrus who said, if there's any religious people among everyone we've conquered, go back to your lands, build your temples, and pray for me. I'm not sure which of your gods is the correct god, but if it's one of them, I certainly want you praying for me to him. So Cyrus let everyone go home, and Zechariah was a priest among the first 50,000 people that took the 500-mile journey from Persia back to Israel. They got to Israel, they set up the foundations of the temple, but the city was a mess. The city had not been rebuilt yet. The walls had not been rebuilt yet. Ezra and Nehemiah had not been there yet. So the people of Israel said, what good is this? And they stopped building the temple. God sent them two prophets, 
One of them was named Haggai. One of them was named Zechariah. They were the good cop, bad cop prophets to get the temple rebuilt. Haggai basically said this, you are a terrible bunch of people build the the temple. Like that was Haggai's message. Haggai was fire and brimstone. You are so sinful. You are so despicable. Get going again. Zechariah prophesying at the exact same time was the good cop. He didn't tell the people how bad they were. He told them how good God was. And he said, listen, if you will do this, God will use it. I know you are tough. I know you are broken people going through broken times, but if you will follow God, God will use it. And here's what Zechariah promised them. I know it doesn't seem like anything in our lifetime is ever gonna change. However, if you will rebuild this building, eventually Messiah is gonna ride right into it. On the back of a donkey, gentle, on the back of a colt, if you will build this building, I promise you Messiah is gonna come and he's gonna rule, and he's gonna reign. Just be faithful. For those of you questioning the omniscience of God, God can't possibly see what I'm going through right now, or the sovereignty of God, God can't possibly be in control of what's going on right now. What you have to understand is God sees you, and for some reason, his divine purpose and plan is working in you, around you, and through you, and if you will be faithful, if you will be faithful, Jesus will come and God will use your story and whatever's going on in your story for the world. That's the doctrines of omniscience. That's the doctrine of sovereignty. And Matthew would say to his readers, one of the ways you can know for sure that God sees and God is in charge is all this fulfilled prophecy. I said last week at Easter for people still checking out the Christian faith, please go home and Google fulfilled Bible prophecy because one of the reasons we believe this book is supernatural is because God said, Thousands of years in advance, in some cases, exactly what was going to happen in the future. There's no way that this book couldn't have been written by somebody who wasn't supernatural because it tells so many things far in advance. Matthew 60 times quotes messianic prophecy, meaning Old Testament predictions about what Jesus would be to prove that Jesus is God's Messiah. And Matthew would use fulfilled prophecy as the backbone of his message, We would say fulfilled prophecy is one of the primary backbones to the Christian argument that scripture comes from God and that Jesus is God's Messiah. Because I wanted to make it easy on you, instead of going to Google, I put together this flyer from um, a Bible dictionary today. This is, in very small print inside your bulletin, all of the Old Testament Bible texts that prophesies or predicts the life of Jesus. This is all of the areas they came true in the Old Testament. This is page one, this is page two, this is page three, this is page four. For those of you who didn't wanna grab the bulletin or you wanna have a digital copy, you can take a picture of that QR code behind you and it will take you to this so that you can have it on your phone. For those of you who study scripture, watch scripture, wow, I feel like a Kardashian, there's a lot of phones pointing at me. Um, Right now, it's okay, go go ahead. I I won't move quickly to the next point yet. For those of you who are talking to a friend about why you believe the Bible, why you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Matthew would say, um, there's no way all these things could be true about the same person unless it was really somebody God sent to be the savior of the world. As a matter of fact, Jesus talking to his disciples after he spent time walking seven miles on the road to Emmaus with his disciples in his first appearance to the group would say in Luke 24, 44, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. The way you sum up the Old Testament Hebrew scripture is these three areas, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus said, people who really wanna know who I am and trust God for who I am 
should look at every one of these verses and realize I am the one God said he would send in the Hebrew scriptures. Now listen, it is difficult, but it's important to apply, apply omniscience and sovereignty to our walk with God. And I am learning that with you this year as we read through the Bible together. So we've got nearly a thousand people at our church this year uh, attempting to read through the entire Bible together on the same, same Bible reading plan. And we've been in the story of King Saul and King David of Israel like the past few weeks together. As I, like you, read through 1 Samuel 16, 7 and saw that David was said to have a heart for God um, because God looks at people differently and David has a heart for God. I thought, what was it that made David have a heart for God and Saul not? Because technically, David was far more sinful. Technically. Um, at least in the things we consider sin. We never read that Saul had an affair. Um, we never read that Saul was married to multiple people. We never read that Saul killed like anyone in cold blood. David did all those things. Um, like technically, David appears to have struggled with sin far more than Saul did. So what made David have a heart for God and Saul not? One thing and one thing only. When it came to the issue of omnipotent sovereignty, omniscient sovereignty, not knowing which way to go, but believing that God was in charge. David always trusted the heart of God. Saul always did his own thing. When it came to God knows and God's in charge, David was able to always be patient and say, I'm not sure how this is gonna work, but God knows and God's in charge. Saul always got to the point where there was a time limit for God knowing and God in charge before he had to take over and do his own thing. And the thing that gave David a heart for God was not that he was perfect or sinless, but he was trusting and some of you today need to step into trust. You need to develop a heart for God, not because things in your life are going good, but because things in your life are going bad. But you believe God sees, you believe God's in charge, and you're just gonna trust in some way that God is gonna work through this for his divine purposes in your life. I think the question we need to begin asking as Christians, as we talk about sovereignty and surrender, we need to surrender to the fact that God is always working and we need to stop asking if God is working in a situation, and we need to start asking why God is working in a situation, or how God is working through the situation for his divine purposes and glory in our life. So King Jesus gives us the ministry of sovereignty and omniscience and surrender. We also learn ministry number two, that Jesus, King Jesus gives us the ministry of reverence and righteousness. You're gonna love this point. He gives us a ministry of reverence and righteousness. Look at verses six through 13. It says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt to the place uh, and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd, circle that, I think I can quantify that for you in a minute, spread their cloaks on the road. Circle those four words, cloaks on the road. I think I can explain that to you. While others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed, circle those two pairs of three, ahead of him and those that followed, it'll help our picture, shouted Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then Jesus entered Jerusalem and the whole city, you might circle those three words, the whole city, was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers, the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. 
So let's set the context. We see that a very large crowd went out to meet Jesus on the Mount of Olives. In John chapter 12, we actually learned they went beyond the Mount of Olives. A large crowd had left Jerusalem to go see Jesus for this reason. He had a friend named Lazarus who died. He raised him from the dead. And when people heard that a dead guy was alive again, they all wanted to go see him. So people left Jerusalem to go see Lazarus, who was dead and who was alive again, and Jesus to try to figure out how in the world did this happen? So this large crowd had gone to him and now they were traveling back into Israel. 10 years later, a census was taken in Israel according to Jewish historian Josephus where they found that 260,000 Passover lambs were slaughtered in a week 10 years later at Passover. Uh, a family of 10 or up to 10 Jewish people could share the Passover lamb. So Josephus hypothesized that two to three million people had come into Jerusalem that week. A massive crowd in a very, very small space. The only thing I can compare it to, if you ever went to the Royals or either the Chiefs Championship parades and you found yourself in front of the Liberty Monument kind of watching the speeches at the end, you were probably there standing with between a quarter million, 300,000 people. That's probably what the crowd felt like. And it said half of them were in front of Jesus, half of them were behind Jesus. Like he is packed in on the back of a donkey, this tiny little crowd riding into town, and half of them in front are putting their coats down. He's riding over the coats. Probably the back half are picking up the coats that have been ridden on, and they're putting him back on his back. And they're all shouting the same thing. Hosanna to the son of David. If we would translate this, it translates, save us now, God's Messiah. That's what these words mean. Hosanna means save now. Son of David is a Hebrew Bible, an Old Testament term for God's Messiah. They're saying, save us now, God's Messiah. Jesus is right in the middle of this crowd, listen, but he is not in the middle of their hearts. Let me say it again. He is right in the middle of the crowd, but he is not right in the middle of their hearts. Because while the actions of the crowd looked correct, the cry of their heart eventually would betray them. Their actions looked awesome. Let me give you a picture of the action. We learn in 2 Kings 9, 13, that when the king of Israel was anointed, the people would take their coats and lay, with they, lay them on the steps leading up to the throne. Usually it was government officials who would take off their official coats, lay them on the steps, the king would walk over them. Here's what it symbolized. I'm gonna give it to you in crude form, but it symbolized this. Um, I trust you to have authority over me. Taking off your coat, which you identified with, and placing it down for somebody to walk on basically means I trust you to walk all over me. I trust you to have complete authority over me. Taking my coat off, laying it in front of you for you to walk over means this is the position. You, are, you have authority over me. I'm gonna lay down and I'm gonna trust you. That's what the people were saying. Jesus, you have complete authority over my life. You can walk all over my back. I trust you that much. And as they laid their coats, they were chanting and singing an Old Testament messianic psalm, Psalm 118, 25 through 29. They're just chanting scripture in the event that they believe is happening. Listen to Psalm 118, 29 through 25. See if you hear our Palm Sunday narrative. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us with boughs in hand. That means with palm branches in hand. Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. 
You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Listen, this crowd of two million plus people was celebrating an event that had happened 14, 1500 years before where the people of Israelites were servants to a world power, the world power of Egypt, and God came in and he rescued them and they left the country and formed their own country and finally were sovereign and in charge of themselves. They were saying, we're celebrating what God did, but maybe God is doing it again now. If God could conquer Egypt in a day, he could conquer Rome in a day. Thank God, save us now, God's Messiah. Finally, we get out from the hand of Rome. It is the Passover all over again. What The event that they were celebrating, they thought had finally come full circle. But less than five days later, the motive of their cry would be revealed because those who said, save us, God's Messiah, would say, crucify him as a criminal. Hosanna, we know for these people on this day, in hindsight, clearly was a cry to save their country, not their souls. Because when their country was not saved within five days, they said, oh, if he's not going to do that, kill him. They were not interested in having their soul saved at the time. And if you read through Old Testament history, what you find out is Israel's enemies were never Israel's greatest enemy. Because Israel's greatest enemy, according to God, was always the sin inside their hearts. And God said, you are convinced that if something outside of you would change, something inside of you would change. But until what is broken inside of you changes, it wouldn't help to change anything on the outside either. Israel's greatest enemies were never their enemies. Israel's greatest enemy was always their sin. And some of you are here thinking today, if my boss would change, my life would change. If my marriage would change, my life would change. If my kids would change, my life would change. If my health would change, my life would change. If these family dynamics would change, my life would change. If the economy would change, my life would change. And Jesus would say, none of your greatest enemies are outside you. If your heart will change, it will change how you view all those things. Your boss might not change, but how you feel about him can. Your marriage might not change, but how you feel about it can. Your kids might not change, but the way you feel about it can. The economy might change, but the security you have in money might change. Like God is saying, let me change what's on the inside. And then regardless of what's happening on the outside, you can have peace. See, the crowd was not prepared for what Jesus did because in a shocking twist, Jesus entered Jerusalem and declared war on the Jewish temple, not the Roman Empire. They were convinced he was riding down the hill like Moses rode out of Egypt, ready to conquer their foreign enemy. And instead, he didn't ride into the Jewish temple. He rode into, he didn't ride into the uh, Roman Empire. He rode into the Jewish temple. Now, let me give you a picture of why they may have assumed he was, con he was coming to conquer Rome. If you go to the Temple Mount in Old Testament times or even the Temple Mount today, I'm gonna put it on the side screen so you can take a closer look at it. Um, the temple is lined up facing east. The steps that you see are on the southern side of the temple. Uh, for those of you who are going with me in Israel to July, in July or November, we will do a Bible study on the southern steps of the temple um, that have been uncovered back to 2,000 years ago, which means we will sit on steps. It's very possible Jesus and his disciples walked up, and we'll do a Bible study there. We also will go to the northeastern corner of the temple, and we'll hold some Bible study time in what was the Antonia Fortress, the Roman garrison 
was headquartered on the northeast corner of the Temple Mount so that they could squash anything that ever happened in Israel. You can go to the Antonia Fortress and you can stand on first century pavement where possibly Jesus was persecuted, um, where they put a robe on him, where they mocked him, um, where they prepared to crucify him, where they placed the crown of thorns on his head 2,000 years ago. So we'll go to those two historical places. It would have been very evident coming down the Mount of Olives. You have to come down the Mount of Olives to get to the Antonia Fortress. The people probably thought he's going to come down the Mount of Olives. He's going to march into Antonia Fortress. He's going to clear the Romans out of the city and declare Jewish freedom once and for all. And instead, he didn't go to Antonia Fortress. We wrote instead, read instead that he rode onto the Temple Mount and just started flipping out. Like started flipping tables, started knocking stuff over, started driving people away, not everyone, but most people out. And you're like, what in the world was Jesus doing here? Well, he tells us as he's turning over tables that his frustration is because scripture says that the temple would be a house of prayer, but he said, you've made it a den of robbers. Now, let me give you the most misrepresented verse in the New Testament in the last 25 years in churches. A lot of people see what Jesus is doing here and say, that's why you shouldn't sell coffee in the atrium. Shouldn't buy and sell in the church and like you just wanna go turn over tables and throw chairs and like knock coffee stuff everywhere. That is not what it's saying at all. Like shouldn't sell t-shirts. It has nothing to do with buying or selling stuff on church property. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. Anytime he quoted Old Testament scripture, he was saying, you are doing that, what they were doing in the Old Testament. Go back and look at what they were doing. He actually said, it is written, so we know he's talking about the Old Testament, it is written that you right now are doing this. What were they doing? He was pulling from Jeremiah chapter seven. Listen to the context. God says to the people of Israel, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, follow other gods that you've not known, and then come stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we're safe. We're safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? I have been watching, declares the Lord. These were people who said, I'm safe to live however I want to. I can do whatever I want because when I go to church, I'm safe spiritually. Jesus is like, that is not how it works. This has nothing to do with buying and selling something in the atrium. This has to do with somebody who Monday through Saturday lives some way and then shows up on Sunday and says, I'm safe spiritually because I come to church. Jesus said, that is not how this whole thing works. It doesn't work that if you go to church for an hour on Sunday, you think, now I'm safe spiritually, can go live however I want. That is not the way it works, yet that's what you have made it. So the tables were all set up because that's where you would buy your religious trinkets and your sacrifices to go offer your prayers and uh, all your dedication that you weren't gonna keep. So Jesus flipped that over and he said, I don't need you to just play church. I need you to either live for God or get out of here because this is a place for people who wanna live for God. Now we know because the standard of righteousness is perfection that we cannot be righteous. But Jesus would say, I will be righteous on your behalf and you will be reverent in your obedience for how you receive that. See, Christians don't worship Jesus because of something they need him to do for them. Christians worship Jesus because of what he's already done for them. Amen? Amen. Like, Christians don't live with righteousness so we can get something from God. Christians 
attempt to live with righteousness because of what we have already received from God in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of his son. Like, that's what it means, the ministry of reverence and righteousness. Jesus was our righteousness. He lived the perfect life we could not live, and then he gave it to us. He died a death for sin. We didn't want to die, and then he gave it to us and said, because of my righteousness, my, because of my righteousness, be reverent in how you live for me. Don't just show up at church for an hour on Sunday and think I'm safe and then go live your life however you want to Monday through Saturday. That is not how following Jesus works. The ministry of Jesus is reverence because of his righteousness. It's an all day, every day thing. It's not just he rose on Easter, it's he reigns every day of the year. And then ministry number three, we see the ministry of dependency and decision. I love this one. Parents, grandparents, get ready. Hopefully I've got a word of encouragement for you. It says in verses 14 through 17, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple. Let's stop right there. Jesus did not drive everyone out of the temple. He just drove those who wanted to play church, play religion out of the temple. People who still needed him, they're still there. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they ask him? Yeah, Jesus replied. Have you never read, and then he quotes Psalm 8-2, from the lips of children and infants, the word there is toddlers and infants, really young people. You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Let's put a few things together and then be done today. When we look at the words blind, lame, children, and infants, which would be toddlers and infants. These are all words to describe those who were completely dependent on Jesus. Jesus quoted Psalm 8-2 to say, people who are completely dependent on mothers cry for their mothers. That's how followers of Jesus cry for me. The lame and the blind, people who have no other hope but me are still coming to me. Every now and then I'll have someone ask me, Christian, what do you think the future of Christianity looks like in America? And I'll say this there will always be a crowd of hurting people around Jesus. Christianity will not go away because brokenness is not going away. And at some point, broken people realize Jesus is the only thing. So there may be a lot of people cleared out of the temples, the churches of America, but the lame, the blind, those who have a spiritual handicap that they can't handle on their own, those who are broken will always be drawn to Jesus because he's the only place where they can receive help. So there will always be people who are dependent upon Jesus. At the end of this message, we'll go through our prayer points, and one of those prayer points will be, what spiritual handicap are you struggling with right now? What step can you not take on your own that like, makes you dependent on Jesus, and how can you lean into him and be this group of dependent people? But then there's a shift from dependence to decision, and it's really a shift we can't see in the English language very well. The chief priest who were in the temple... Um, as everyone else left, it says there were these children there, and they were still shouting, Hosanna, um, son of David. Um, Hosanna, like, God save us, you're God's Messiah. And the chief priest said, do you hear what these children are shouting? The word children in the Greek language there literally is the word boys in Greek, and it probably refers to those who had just celebrated their bar mitzvahs and become men spiritually. Why was this a big deal? I've never been in Jerusalem for any amount of time when there isn't a, a family and usually a spiritual community celebrating bar mitzvah. I love it. It is my favorite time 
to be in Israel because these, these boys and these families dressed in all white, it's usually a boy who's turning 13 and usually a pack of his friends from wherever he is from, and then moms and dads and aunts and uncles. It's like this big traveling birthday party with friends. They have these guys that dress in all white. They have tambourines. They have the old school ram horns that they're blowing. They're playing drums, and they will march from outside the city to inside the city with these big blue balloons over top of them, and it symbolizes not only that this young man is going to become a man, but they will march to what we know as the Wailing Wall, into the interior libraries of the Wailing Wall. And for the first time, a young man will stand and read scripture out loud from the Torah publicly. He will not just become a man, he'll become a spiritual man and he'll offer prayers publicly and loudly at the wall. It is not just him becoming a man, it is him becoming a spiritual man on his own. I love watching it every time I go to Jerusalem. What it appears happened in this instance is some parents had brought their kids from probably all over the Middle Eastern world. Some of them had celebrated their bar mitzvahs. And some of these kids who were deciding now on their own to become spiritual men were saying, Jesus is the guy we're going to follow. And the chief priests were like, whoa, 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 whoa. You hear what you're doing? Like, you're confusing these boys. Tell them to stop. And Jesus is like, they're the ones who have it right. Like, you appear to know everything spiritually, but they are the ones who have it right. It is such a beautiful picture of dependence that turns into decision. Listen to me, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas. Our job spiritually in a world of discipleship, as long as our children are dependent on us, is to place them before Jesus, 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 and pray that one day on their own, they will make their own decision to follow Jesus. We have so many times, because they're dependent on us, we place them before Jesus, place them before Jesus, place before, we place them before Jesus, and we pray that someday our placement becomes their decision, and they say, I'm gonna follow him. Now, let's state what the Bible states clearly. Not every child of faithful Christian parents wants to follow Jesus. And for some of you parents and grandparents, it is the greatest heartbreak and tension of your life even today. You need to know you're not alone. Adam and Eve had a son who chose not to follow God. Um, Noah had a son who chose not to follow God. Abraham had a son who chose not to follow God. Isaac had a son who chose not to follow God. Jacob had several sons and daughters who chose not to follow God. Eli, the high priest of Israel, had sons who did not follow God. Samuel, the final judge of Israel, had sons who did not follow God. David had children who did not follow God. Solomon would have children who did not follow God. Hezekiah, one of the great kings of Israel, would have a son named Manasseh who would be one of the worst kings of Israel. We can, as often as we know how, put our kids in front of Jesus, 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 front of Jesus and have them at some point say, that's not for me at least more spiritual people than you and I in the Bible did. Not one time do we see that mom and dad say, if you aren't gonna follow Jesus, then the whole family's out. The best picture we have for that situation is the son of the prodigal father who says, you can go, I can't make the decision for you, but every day I pray and wait, and I just hope in the grace of Jesus that the Jesus I've set you before as often as I can will be a Jesus that you will say yes to, but I can't make the decision for you. Parents, grandparents trying to, in your soul, struggle with. My son, my daughter, my grandkids have walked away. Just keep praying, keep waiting. 
believe in the omniscience and the sovereignty of God. He knows more than we do and he's working everything according to his purposes and wills. But like so many parents of the Bible whose kids walked away, you remain faithful. Like Zachariah said, just build the temple because who knows one day who's gonna be walking back to it. It is a tension to manage. It's a prayer to pray. But we need to keep placing our kids before Jesus because most of them won't put themselves there. I don't know if you know this or not, but kids are sinful. If you have kids, you know that. If you haven't had kids, you'll find that out. Um, they're just born that way. Uh, Danielle and I, Pasha and Ira normally sit over here. Where are you, where are you guys sitting today, Pasha and Ira? Right here. Um, so our couple who will, t- are you guys still flying out Tuesday? Um, our couple from Ukraine who was uh, in America with Fellowship of Christian Athletes when war broke out and have been with us now for over a year. Uh, we commissioned them, they will leave Tuesday spent about a month in Poland training for their next ministry assignment in Armenia. So we commissioned them as a church a couple weeks ago and then Danielle and I were hanging out with Pasha and Ira and their girls, Grace and Gloria, uh, in our back office, um, just kind of talking through what was going on for about an hour after church. Um, and I asked them on the way out, uh, I was like, do your girls speak Polish? And they're like, no. And I was like, do they speak Armenian? And they're like, no. And I was like, did they speak English when you got here? And they're like, no, we just kind of throw them in school and they learn it. In their household, they speak Ukrainian and Russian, which means their girls are already speaking three languages, but their little girl, Gloria, who's two, and like as, as cute as anybody you've ever seen and with a little bit of an ornery glint in her eye, um, walks in. She's been in America now for a year and a half, so I said, what language does she think she speaks? Um, and they laughed, and they said, well, she can kind of understand all three, but Pasha said her first word was in English, and it was the word mine. Um, and I thought, well... <laughs> Welcome to America. That's kind of how we. That's kind of how we do it here. He was like, "She speaks English and is sinful," and I'm like, "Yep, that's that's it. That's how we do it." If your kid's first word isn't sinful, one of their first ten will be, because we're broken. And as parents and grandparents, it's our job to just keep setting them before Jesus until they may or may not choose. Um, yes, He is my. Messiah too. What we've learned today is God is sovereign. So you can surrender to what is happening in your life and family right now, and you can trust God. We've learned that Jesus is completely righteous, which causes us to have a reverence out of gratitude for who he was that Monday through Saturday look a whole lot more like Sunday than different than Sunday. And because we're dependent, we have made our decision to place our relationship with God in the hands of Jesus and to trust him. Our king had a coronation. It came with a crown of thorns so his people could one day be given the crown of life. But because he rose, now we let him reign. Amen? What's God said to your heart today? And what do, you, what do you need to do to process that? For those of you who've never been to our church before, here's how we end our services. Um, we have three questions that go along with the message that scroll on the screen behind me. And we just use those as prayer prompts. So if you've never prayed before, let me tell you what prayer looks like. As you've heard this message, and as you hear a question about the message, your answer to that spiritually becomes a conversation between you and God. So our goal is as you read these questions that you would begin to think of your answer and as you process that, that you just turn it into a prayer and have a conversation with God. Not out loud, but just where you are. Three questions, each of them will stay on the screen for 60 seconds. 
And then at the end, I'll come up and give us some dismissal stuff. I can, like, those doors keep open and I can smell the hamburgers from here. So, like, I know we're getting close to eating, to baptisms. I'll come at the end and give some instructions about that. But what has God said to your heart? And as you process it, what steps do you need to take to take a step forward? Let me pray real quick and then we'll give you the questions to reflect on God. Open our hearts and our minds. Give us some prayer conversation as we reflect on what we've heard and learned and we apply it to our life today in Jesus' name. Amen.